I want to call your attention to the book of Colossians chapter 4. We have been preaching through Colossians since uh, August of last year. And last Sunday, I told the church it was my last sermon from the book of Colossians for this series. Well, as we went through the verse, I found one more uh, that I had not planned on preaching on. And the Lord's laid this verse on my heart. Now, those of you that aren't preachers here, you might feel like you're going to be able to take the day off because this is really a sermon directed towards pastors. But uh, just so that you don't get totally off the hook, I want to give you another verse uh, that you can keep in your mind while uh, when we get down to verse 17 that talks to the ministers. Colossians chapter 4 verse 12, and this was actually our text last Sunday at Hopewell, says, Epaphras, who was one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you. Now, if you read about Epaphras in the scriptures, you'll find even in the book of Colossians that he was a, a minister to the Colossian church. He had apparently left the Colossian church with a report of their spiritual condition and gone to the Apostle Paul and was laboring with the Apostle Paul. And so when Paul says Epaphras salutes you, he's making reference to this one that had come to him with a message about the welfare of the Colossian church. In the beginning of the book, it says, As you also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. So those two verses give us some clues about this man, Epaphras. And Paul says this about Epaphras. He says, Always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Evidently, Paul knew firsthand that Epaphras was, was constantly without ceasing praying fervently for the Colossian church that they might stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Here's my charge to you this morning. Pray for your pastor. Pray for your ministers, the elders in this congregation. Pray for them to be able to pray for you fervently. The word fervently there in the Greek is agonizomai, which means to agonize in prayer. You need to have a pastor. Your pastors need to be praying for you fervently. And we need you to pray for us to have that grace and have that burden and have that ability to pray for you fervently. Pray for your pastors. Now, let's go down to verse 17. He says, And say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. Archippus, some believe, was the current pastor at the Colossian church. Epaphras was probably the founding minister, and Archippus is now um, involved in ministry here. He, he probably was the pastor. Based on this text, I think some of the things that Paul wrote to the Colossian church was filling in maybe the gaps that Archippus was leaving undone in his ministry. So we have here biblical precedent. John Gill makes this point that Through this text, we see that it is biblical for a church body to exhort their pastor to take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord. Now, this text, my sermon this morning, is going to be primarily for me. I don't want you to think that I come up here to criticize your pastor or the men that preach to you. But this is the text that I have on my heart this morning. I hope God will bless us to be instructed in our ministries. And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, 
that thou fulfill it. The word fulfill there is plero, and it means to uh, cram or to level up. And so the mental image that I immediately get in my mind is uh, of a mother baking and scooping the flour in the measuring cup. And sometimes they'll say in the recipes, you know, you want to be uh, level full, and you know, scrape the knife across the top and be sure it's crammed full. So our ministries, we want to fulfill our ministries. We want our ministries to be full in a way that honors and glorifies the Lord. Well, let's look at some texts here that maybe will give us some light about how we fulfill our ministries that we've received. Uh, <clears throat> when we come to the end of our course, whether you're a preacher or not, we want to be able to say with the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, Paul said this, and Paul was not boasting or bragging, but he was stating the truth. He said, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. And so uh, we want to be able to come to the end of our lives here and be able to say, I have fought a good fight. To be able to say that in faith, not saying that boastingly, but giving God the glory. I've fought a good fight. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. Paul said this while he was still alive. Maybe he knew that his time was short here, but he said, I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. Now, one of the things I was taught early on and I'm thankful for is the principle that if a man desires to be successful in his ministry, he needs to have a biblical understanding of what success is. Uh, uh, When you look at modern religion in our society, a lot of men, unfortunately, define success based upon numbers and based upon uh, money. And so they look around and they say, well, who has the most money and who has the most numbers? And what are they doing? And let me copy them. Well, is that a biblical view of success when it comes to the ministry? I had a minister tell me one time, he said, God hasn't called me to be successful. God's called me to be faithful. And if I'm faithful, I will be successful. And so as ministers and as children of God, we need to be reminded of what God's perspective is on success. And God's perspective is, if you're faithful with what I've entrusted to you, then you're going to be successful. We need to evaluate our ministries from a heavenly perspective, not from a worldly perspective. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is what motivated Paul. This is what uh, got Paul out of bed in the morning. This is what encouraged him through the difficulties. He said, <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 5, He said, for whether we be beside ourselves, it is is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. The word constrain, I had to look up, because when I think about being constrained, I think of the word constrict, and I couldn't figure out how being constricted by the love of Christ, would help you. But Paul's saying that it's the love of Christ that that motivates him, that encourages him, that spurs him on, that leads him on. The love that Christ has 
for him. The love that Christ has for his people. The love of Christ that's manifested in what he goes on to say in this verse. Christ dying for his elect. Christ dying for all of his people. That if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. So Paul's motivation in his ministry is the love that Jesus Christ has for his people, manifested in his death for their sins on the cross, his burial and his resurrection. And Paul says his goal, his desire in his ministry, is that those which were dead and have been made alive by the grace of God to live unto the living Lord Jesus Christ, who's seated at the right hand of God the Father, our great high priest, by whom we come boldly before the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in times of need. He says that they henceforth should not live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. So brother Stephen, brother Steve, you men that God may call to preach, our goal in our ministry is for God's children not to live unto themselves, but to live unto Jesus Christ. For our lives to be surrendered to Christ. For our wills to be surrendered to Christ. For Jesus Christ to be the motivation for all of God's children. That we might not live our lives unto ourselves, but unto him which died and rose again. This was Paul's motivation. This was what motivated him in his ministry. Well, let's look at some particular instruction that he gives. First of all, 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says this to Timothy. Verse 16, he says, um, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. What was Paul saying? So he's saying, Timothy, you better preach the truth and better live the truth, or some of God's children are going to go to hell. Was he saying, Timothy, if you don't do perfectly in your ministry, uh, God's children are going to not enjoy the benefits that Jesus Christ purchased on the cross? No, but he is saying there is a deliverance, there is a salvation for God's children when the pastor takes heed to his doctrine and to his lifestyle. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. And so he says thyself first. I would say there have been many sermons that have been undermined. I know in my own life I've had... Some at this church, and I thank God for that, come up to me and say, you know, <clears throat> what you preached was good, but some of the decisions you're making undermine what you preached. And so Paul says, it's both. We don't just need to preach the truth, but we need to live the truth. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. So first of all, it's the doctrine that we preach with our lives and with our lips that we need to uh, be mindful about. Secondly, in Acts chapter 20, Paul, when he realized that he might not see the Ephesian uh, elders again, the pastors at the church at Ephesus, the preachers at Ephesus, he gave them these exhortations. He says, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. This is echoing the words of Jesus Christ. This is what Brother uh, Robert Cook put in my ordination Bible that Mount Carmel gave to me uh, in 2012. He put in the Greek there the words that Jesus Christ said about feed my sheep. Lovest thou me more than these? 
feed my lambs. And so Paul summarizes the gospel ministry in taking heed to the flock of God to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Some more good counsel that I've received in my own ministry is when you pastor a church, it's important to remember it's not your church. It's not your congregation. It's not your people. It's the Lord's people. It's the Lord's congregation. And the Holy Ghost has made you overseers over the flock of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And so it's the value of Jesus Christ's blood that was shed for each one of you that motivates your pastors It motivates your preachers to labor for your spiritual welfare. And so, Paul also says, you should hold him highly in esteem in the Lord. Because he's watching for your soul as one that must give an account. Pray for your pastors to be able to do the work faithfully that Jesus Christ has given for us in the gospel ministry. Pray for the Lord to add laborers to the harvest. Because he says the fields are white unto harvest. uh, The harvest is great, but the laborers are few. Next, Peter says the same thing Paul's been teaching Timothy and the church at Ephesus in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Here it is again. Feed the flock of God which is among you taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Your preachers, your pastor needs wisdom to know what kind of spiritual nourishment from God's Word you need to preach the the whole counsel of the Word of God to feed you with the truth of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's easy. To get into a text. And it's easy to get into topics. And I've been guilty of this. And to lose sight of the one it's supposed to point us to. Which is Jesus Christ. It's easy to get into studying the scriptures. And get excited about what you're learning. And forget the whole reason that God's put it in there for us in the first place. Old and New Testament. Our goal and our desire should be to see Jesus Christ. And to preach Jesus Christ. And how do you do that? Sometimes... It seems difficult. I've struggled with this and talking to even Carlin. She's given me some good counsel in preaching through Colossians. We came through some very practical exhortations where it just commands you to do things like masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And I struggle with how do you how do you get to the gospel from that when you're talking about what masters should give unto their servants? Certainly, we look to our heavenly master who gives us uh, everything that we stand in need of. And Jesus is the perfect example for us, whether it's being a husband or a wife, whether it's being a a father or a mother, whether it's being a, a servant or a master. Jesus is the example for us, the model husband and the model uh, parent, the model uh, master. But it's more than that. Jesus is not just a moral example for us as believers. That's very true. Jesus Christ came to fulfill the law, not to destroy it, but to fulfill it to the jot and to the tittle. And he loved uh, while he's here on this earth. He loved God, the father uh, with all of his heart, soul, mind and strength. And he loved his neighbor as himself. And he was poured out continually for the welfare of those that were around him. And he sacrificed his time and he sacrificed his energy and he gave of himself freely. And his life was poured out on the cross out of love 
for the Father and love for you. He's a, he's a wonderful example for us. He's the perfect example for us. But beloved, the gospel goes beyond just the moral example of Jesus Christ. Other religions might have moral examples that they can look to. Jesus Christ is more than just an example for us about how we're supposed to live our lives. The gospel goes to the level that Jesus Christ is not only one who sets an example for us. He doesn't just say, follow me and everything will be just fine. Jesus Christ is the one who has satisfied the law's demand on our behalf. He is what the gospel calls a substitute. And so how do we get to this truth that Jesus Christ is our, not only our leader, not only our example, but he's our redeemer and our savior. And not only has he saved us eternally from the wrath of, of, of God's judgment in hell, but how he continues to work in our lives right now. And when we come to these commandments, which today is towards the ministry of fulfilling the ministry which we've received in the Lord. How does the truth of Jesus Christ as our not only example as the perfect pastor, the one who feeds his flock with the knowledge of God, not only our prophet, but also our priest. How does that knowledge impact us in our Christian ministries? That he's our redeemer. That he's the one who sits at the right hand of God. That he is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our inabilities. He knows our fears. He knows our ignorances. He knows that we're just dust. He knows what a high calling we have in Jesus Christ. And how can we be faithful? How can we fulfill such a high calling? How does the the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's done for us impact us in the very practical ramifications for how we live our life as Christians? In living our lives, not for ourselves, but living it for Jesus Christ. How do those two doctrines and teachings intersect? That's what the gospel uh, tells us. The gospel, which is the power of God into salvation. The good news of Jesus Christ. How that the righteousness of God and the mercy of God have met together so that the psalmist says they've kissed each other. How those two things could come together and it's on the cross of Jesus Christ where he became our substitute. And our sins were applied to his account. And it pleased the Father to bruise the Son. And because of what he's done for us, because of the price that he's paid, we have uh, all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And that includes the grace that we need to live our lives for Jesus Christ in this world of sin and sorrow. He's given us everything that we stand in need of to serve him. The scripture says that God's given us in the word of God everything that the man of God needs to live a life of godliness, that we might be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. The Colossian church had been tempted by and been taught, perhaps, falsely, that they needed something in addition to Jesus Christ to serve God. That they needed something in addition to the the Word of God to know about God and everything that that they needed to know uh, as far as philosophy goes and where the world came from and those sort of things. Listen. I'm going to take a little tangent here because I think it's so important. <clears throat> what about the dinosaurs? Where did they come from and where are they now? And, and all this talk about dinosaurs living millions and millions of years before human beings. How do you reconcile those two teachings? I looked up, I did a Google search this week, and I looked for Christian Paleontologist magazine. I just want to know if there's any Christian paleontologists that are putting out a Christian perspective on di- dinosaurs. And I, found, I can't find one. I emailed a, uh, a Christian apologetics 
group down in Alabama. You may have heard of Dr. Dino, Ken Hooven. And um, I just asked them if they knew of any Christian uh, paleontologists that are out there. Well, paleontologists just studies the fossil record. And what I found is that the unbelieving scientific community dominates this field of dinosaur bones. Where did that all come from? What's your opinion about that? It just occurs to me that many Christians perhaps have an unbiblical worldview, even just about the dinosaurs. Yes, the dinosaurs were real, but you know they're not alive today. They became extinct. How did they become extinct? The general explanation is, well, there was an ice age that happened many years before human beings were on the earth, and uh, that's why they're gone. Well, look, that's not a biblical worldview. The biblical worldview is that the dinosaurs were made on the same day as the rest of the creatures, including the day that God made Adam and Eve, the sixth day of creation. That's a biblical worldview. You don't find that promoted very often. There's a couple of ministries out there that will teach that. But I ask you as Christians today, do you have a biblical worldview about dinosaurs? I'm not saying a Christian can explain all the mysteries about it, but I'm saying when you've got these uh, so-called scientific uh, theories that contradict the Word of God, I'm not talking about scientific facts, but I'm talking about theories. When you have theories and philosophies that contradict the Word of God, and maybe there's not a lot of Christian uh, defending a biblical worldview on that particular subject, where do you fall on that? When you have to make a decision about, do I believe in the Word of God, do I believe in uh, what the majority of popular culture is saying, where do you fall on that decision? The Colossians were like us. They had struggles that they were wrestling with. Paul was pointing them back to Jesus Christ. As far as the dinosaurs go, I don't really want to get into talking about dinosaurs, but as far as it goes, you might be interested to know that in the book of Job, there are two very large animals that Job mentions. Bohemoth and Leviathan. Bohemoth was a very large land animal. Leviathan was a very large sea creature. Apparently, there were dinosaurs in the days of Job. If you have questions or thoughts about that, we can talk about that later. The point is, Paul says to the Colossians, in Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. When we lived in Maryland, we were going to Pennsylvania one day and I saw a sign on the road and somebody had drawn a picture that looked like Benjamin Franklin and he had on his glasses and he was kind of rubbing his chin. He had a question mark and the question was, uh, It has something to do with, like, do you know or understand secret knowledge? And it was an advertisement for Freemasonry. And that's really what that's built upon. This idea of getting secret knowledge. And you only get a little bit bit here and there. And then as you get into it further, you find out uh, just how ungodly that knowledge is. Well, in Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The Colossian church was being tempted by the idea that they needed to add things to their worship of God. He goes on and he talks about um, how they had been taught that maybe there were certain foods you shouldn't eat, certain drinks you shouldn't drink, certain days you need to have uh, extra respect for, holy days and Sabbath days and new moons. And he says, which are a shadow of things to come, but the bodies of Christ. Talking about the Old Testament rituals and the Old Testament laws, all of that in the Old Testament he says, was a shadow of the body, which is Jesus Christ. All of it. Even if I can't explain it to you, all of it, God gave to point to Jesus Christ. 
And Christ has fulfilled that in his death, burial, and resurrection. And he says, let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. All right. I know this is a little bit, a little bit deep, but let's try, to, let's try to summarize this real quick. <clears throat> they had been tricked. Paul was warning them not to be beguiled, not to be tricked, to give up their reward. The inheritance, the blessing that you have as God's children, which is to come directly before God's throne of grace. You don't need a priest. You don't need a mediator that's on the earth to hear your confessions. You can come directly into the presence of God. And that's a miracle. We need to to remember the miracle that that is. It calls Jesus Christ his death on the cross. It's a miracle that the children of Israel did not enjoy. Only the high priest was allowed in the most holy place once a year on the Day of Atonement. And he had to take blood for the sins of himself, for the sins of the people. Jesus Christ offered the perfect sacrifice of himself. And the temple, uh, the, the veil in the temple was rent in two from top to bottom. That's your reward through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And the temptation, because of the pride of our mind, he says they're vainly puffed up by their fleshly mind. The temptation is to add to or to take away from the focus of what Christ has done. And here, apparently, there was the worshiping of angels, these other mediators, these other uh, uh, messengers. And we see that in our day. And Paul says, let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility. In Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If in our Bible studies, if in our conversations, I can think of a man that probably many of you have heard, used to be on the radio, and he was not a primitive Baptist, but a lot of his teaching was focused on election and predestination. It was pretty good preaching. Well, as you looked over the course of his time on the radio, eventually he started to get into really... uh, confusing things and mysterious things and really started making bold predictions about the end of the world based on his studies of the scriptures. He lost sight of Jesus and started getting into the, his proud understanding of, of, of the studies that he had done. He was puffed up by a fleshly mind. And so as believers, we need to come back to the heart of the gospel, which is Jesus Christ and him crucified. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If that's not who we're talking about, if that's not who we're thinking about, if that's not who we're worshiping, we're missing the mark. We have missed the point of why God gave us the Word of God. And listen, Paul talked about how the Holy Ghost has made you overseers over the flock of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Well, the ministry of the Holy Ghost, you know, there's a big emphasis on the ministry of the Holy Ghost today. Some of the biggest growing, thriving churches in Alabama and I know around the country really focus on the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Well, listen, here's the ministry of the Holy Ghost. The ministry of the Holy Ghost is to point to and to exalt Jesus Christ. The ministry of the Holy Ghost is present when in the preaching of the gospel, Jesus Christ is exalted. The Holy Ghost ministry is not to point to himself. His ministry is to exalt Jesus Christ. All right. <clears throat> Jesus said, and we've referenced it in John 21, 15, feed my lambs. And so that's the calling for, for gospel ministers is to feed, feed God's sheep. Well, I want to look at a couple of men who were called to the ministry, and I want to see some parallels here in their calls and hopefully glean some encouragement in their experiences. The first one is Moses in Exodus chapter 3. 
Moses in Exodus chapter 3 verse 10 has an encounter with the Lord at the burning bush. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Notice God didn't say to Moses, Moses, I've come down to call you to deliver my people from the hand of the Egyptians. God says, I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. It's the same way today. Jesus Christ came down to deliver us from the hand of of the devil and from the influence and the control of this world. But he does call men to serve uh, in the role of the ministry. And he says, and I've come to bring them out of that land into a good land and large and unto a land flowing with milk and honey unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So God came down to deliver his people, but he called Moses to take this leadership role. He gave him a clear call, and he gave him a clear mission. And notice, though, he also gives him a promise. Verse 12, he says, And certainly I will be with thee. When you look at Jeremiah, when you look at other men that God calls into the ministry, God gives them this promise. I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God upon this mountain. So he gives him a promise of his presence and also a promise of victory. You're going to be successful This is how you're going to know that I've called you. You're going to worship me upon this mountain. And then lastly, in verse 18, we see that he also gives him a clear method and a message. He says, And they shall hearken to thy voice, and thou shalt come, thou and the elders of Israel, unto the king of Egypt. And ye shall say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews hath met with us, and now let us go, we beseech thee, three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. This was the message that Moses was to take to Pharaoh. A simple request. Just let us go three days into the wilderness. He wasn't asking for complete deliverance. All he was supposed to do is ask for three days to go into the wilderness so that we can worship God. That was why God set the children of Israel free from the Egyptian rule. So they could have the freedom to worship God. That's why Jesus Christ came. Moses was faithful in his house as a servant. Jesus Christ was faithful over his house as the Son of God. Jesus Christ came. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth has come by Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ came to set you free that you might have the freedom to worship God in spirit and in truth. That's the reason that he came. That's the work that he comes to do in the lives of his children. The Father seeketh such to worship him in spirit and in truth. And Jesus Christ, through the merits of his death, burial, and resurrection, through his imputed righteousness, has made you worthy, has made you fit, has made you acceptable in the sight of the Father so that you can come before his holy presence and you can offer up your sacrifices of praise and you can bring your prayers and you can bring your needs and you can bring your concerns and you can come with boldness and you can come with confidence and you can come with expectation. That God's going to hear your prayer and that God's going to bless your prayer according to his will. That he's going to be glorified and that he's going to work in your life to conform you to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And then, beloved, we had that glorious promise that when Jesus Christ comes back, when the trumpet sounds, when the, splot, when the, when the clouds part and Jesus Christ descends, 
The Bible says we shall see him as he is and we shall be like him. Beloved, uh, be now, beloved, now are we the sons of God. Now, even now, we're the sons of God and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Are you looking forward to that day? Are you looking forward to a day of sinlessness? We sang the song this morning. Farewell, vain world. I'm going home. My Savior bids me come. Can you sing with the, with the hymn writer? Uh, how's, the, how's the chorus go? And then how sweet to die. Can you say with the hymn writer, oh, how sweet to die. Amen. Not that we're looking forward to being disembodied. Not that we're looking forward to leaving our loved ones. But to be in the presence of God without sin. To be seeing Jesus Christ and to be satisfied. Not to be tempted by uh, idols and, and distractions and fears and discouragements and weaknesses and the infirmities of our flesh. But to see Him as He is. And then to have the hope of the day of resurrection when Jesus Christ comes back. And our bodies, if we've already gone on to be with the Lord, are raised up out of the grave. And our souls and bodies are reunited. Or if we're alive and remain at His coming, to be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And to be like the Apostle Paul who said, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Right now he says, with the mind I serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. In our mind we're trying to serve God, but then our, our, our flesh is subject to the law of sin. But there's a day coming, beloved, where we're going to be able to worship him with the liberty and the freedom and the joy of the glorified saints of God. Without the afflictions of sin. Without the fear of death. And so we are called now to surrender our lives completely. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The love of Christ constraineth us. We might live our lives unto the one who gave himself for us. Unto the one who died for us. Pray God will bless us in our ministries. Whether you're in the ministry now or whether God calls you in the future possibly to fulfill the ministry which we've received. In the Lord. God bless you. We're glad you've been able to listen to this podcast. We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 10.30 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast application.